Welcome again to BadQuaker.com. It's Monday, September 5th, 2011. Today's going to be a little unusual in the sense that we don't have an audio article. I'm Ben, and I am just here discussing some things about the website BadQuaker.com, why we're here, what we're doing, what to expect from us, some of the uh, things like, for instance, if you go to BadQuaker.com, you're going to see a uh, a row of pictures of ugly old men. Now you might ask yourself, who are these clowns? Well, on the far left, we have a, a gentleman looking off into the distance, and that is Lysander Spooner. Spooner was an amazing man. He didn't... There were a few things that he was confused about, but overall he probably had the most consistent political view of anyone in the 1800s within the United States of America. The next man uh, beside him in the in the more uh, Spooner's picture is is a considered black and white, but if you look at it, it's more of a has a sort of a reddish tone, a reddish and white. Uh, it's just the way that it was developed and so forth. But the next picture over is uh, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, his actual name was David Henry Thoreau, and he just decided to start calling himself the other way around at some point in time. So he is Henry David Thoreau, and he's the one with the funny little beard on the bottom and then the clean-shaved mustache area and chin and cheeks. He just kind of has like this funny whisker thing around his neck. And he claimed that the uh, that the ladies really liked that look. Uh, I have no verification of that one way or the other. But Thoreau was an interesting person. He was very much a individualist and a philosopher, and he was a poet and a writer. But uh, but he was quite an interesting person, and he was definitely in the league with the other gentlemen in this row. The next person we see is kind of leaning back and kind of looking off to the side, and he sort of has a little bit of an upset look on his face. That guy's Herbert Spencer. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about Herbert Spencer because the few listeners that I have, the we have, oh, a little under a 1,000 downloads a day at badquaker.com, and, and those few that we have at a 1,000 downloads a day, uh, I really don't want to get them upset by talking too much about Herbert Spencer, but... I will say that he had some very interesting ideas, and he followed through uh, things with a very consistent way of thinking. He's a very interesting writer. Murray Rothbard, ooh, let me see if I can find that quote real quick. He called Herbert Spencer's book, uh, Herbert Spencer's work, this. Uh, Murray Rothbard called his work the greatest single work of libertarian political philosophy ever written. So if that's Murray Rothbard saying that about you, uh, you just take that compliment and roll with it. The next person we see who is uh, center to the right in the row of pictures is Ludwig von Mises, quite possibly the smartest man of the 20th century. In the picture, we see him gazing down in a very uh, stoic-looking, a very official-looking way, a very inspirational person. His life story, his... Uh, uh, escaping death as a soldier in World War One, escaping death at the hands of the Nazis, coming to first to England, then to the U.S., having uh, no real way of supporting himself, and yet this giant of an intellectual man, founding practically single-handed uh, in the U.S. the economics uh, 
aspect of libertarianism. Uh, then we have Murray Rothbard. He's the only person in the row of pictures who seems happy. <laughs> and I never had the pleasure of meeting Murray Rothbard. I would have loved to have. But those who have met him or knew him pretty much all said he was a pretty happy guy. And then I, I way over-honor myself by putting me in the same row with these gentlemen. And, but if you notice, I give myself an out with the phrase that I put across there. One of these is not like the others. And I'm definitely not like those guys in 99.9% .9 of the ways. But in the one way, we're all the same. We are enemies of the state. I'm not a combatant of the state. And I realize the need for good government, balanced government, voluntary government. But when the state becomes oppressive, you you have to say something about it. You have to point it out. You have to do something. So that's the row of ugly old men on the face of badquaker.com. I would encourage you to get to know Lysander Spooner. Uh, take a look at the works of Henry David Thoreau. If you're brave... <laughs> Take a peek at Herbert Spencer. He might shock you. Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises. Difficult man to read. I have a real hard time reading his stuff. I have to go and read Murray Rothbard's stuff to understand what Ludwig von Mises was talking about. And that brings us to Murray Rothbard. Murray was a great writer. I first bumped into Murray Rothbard's writing uh, not in his economic stuff and not having anything to do with libertarianism. I found a, an old book in a, in a garage sale and picked it up for, I don't know what, like 25 cents or something. And it was uh, one volume of his uh, work, uh, Conceived in Liberty. Um, I think it was actually volume two or volume three, and I can't remember which now. And I've, I think I've lost the book, although it could be in any one of many boxes of books we have around the house. But uh, I read it and read it and read it and read it over and over, and I loved it. But... Um, I never knew Murray Rothbard was not a historian. I always just assumed he was some obscure historian. I had no idea he was actually an economist, and I didn't know he was a libertarian, and I didn't know anything else about him. All I had was this one book. Now, we're talking the early 80s, so I had no way of looking the man up. There was, there was no Internet. There was no Google. I couldn't, you know, there was no Wikipedia. I couldn't go and find out anything about him. All I knew was I had some really interesting little piece of a history uh, set written by somebody I'd never heard of and the library had no record of and nobody in the library knew anything about and nobody in the bookstore knew anything about so I was stuck with it so that was my introduction to Murray Rothbard so what's the purpose of badquaker.com well sometime back I I just I I used to have a dozen or so different identities and I would post things in different forums and on different uh, different places on the internet trying to get my opinion across and it's very frustrating because you never you're on essentially it's somebody else's forum you're in their you're in their house in their living room on their property and you have to respect their rules and you have to be careful what you say and and so forth and this was very frustrating and I could never really express my, the fullness of my thoughts and uh, my desires and what I was trying to say. So, 
through a lot of contemplation on this and a lot of uh, my wife and I talking about it and trying to figure out what we were going to do, we came to the point of where she decided that she would help me on this. And she has provided for me badquaker.com with the help of others. And when I say the help of others, we've had... Uh, people within the family that have helped us, and we've had people outside of our immediate family that, uh, you know, people all the way on the other side of the United States that volunteered and put their time and their effort into helping put badquaker.com on the Internet, uh, getting it all lined up, getting the, the hosting correct, and getting email to work, and getting the... Uh, the the things that you see when you go there, making the buttons work and making all those things happen. It was a joint effort of this uh, several people that have allowed me the opportunity to to express myself in this way uh, without holding back. And that's that's really the key as to as to why we wanted to put something on badquaker.com. We've had the the fortune of having guest writers, some that I didn't ask to be guest. I just went out and stole their stuff and posted it. But others we've had that were that actually approached us and and were kind enough to write for us. We've had that provided us ar- articles that we were able to post for them. Uh, Kai, my daughter, has worked with me almost every Wednesday. I think we have put out a podcast where she and I just kind of bat things back and forth, and that's always fun. Um, Hopefully that'll be able to continue. Let's go over some of the topics that are available in the archives at badquaker.com. The very first article that we published at badquaker.com was a sort of a fun, whimsical, silly little thing called Waffle People. And it was uh, basically, it was how people misunderstand uh, who you are and what you are and what you stand for. That was uh, kind of a fun little thing I threw together out of frustration of watching people misunderstand what this movement is and what it means. Um, our next article that we put out, that we put out was called uh, My Natural Progression from a Libertarian Theist to a Quaker. And that brings up the topic of bad Quaker. Uh, if you've read over on the badquaker.com site on the page labeled about bad quaker there's kind of an explanation of what a what a quaker is and the separation of what a bad quaker is in my opinion a bad quaker essentially being uh, a non-pacifist who still pretty much holds to the basic ideas of quakerism and there's also a page on the same listing across the header there for Good Quakers. So you can go there to Good Quakers and you can actually link to the Religious Society of Friends in a couple different uh, links that are available there and find out what they are. And and as I do so, I, I find out the areas that I have in common with the Religious Society of Friends and I find out areas that I do not have in common. But that's the wonderful thing about the Religious Society of Friends or the Quakers is that there are no hard lines to say this is definitely what a Quaker is and this is not. Um, It means different things to different people, so there's a lot of mutual respect there. Back to uh, badquaker.com archives. 
some of the other things that we have available there are some of the more radical pieces that I've written. If you take a look at it, the article, A General Theory of Liberty, Tyranny, and Sin, has within it a pretty radical statement. If you take a look at that uh, article, um, it was published March 31st of 2011, and then on May 23rd, the audio version of that became available. Take a listen to that or take a look at that, and there's a pretty radical uh, thought that's embedded in that article that I've never actually seen anyone else put across. If someone else sees that, I'm not going to point out exactly what the what the point is, but if someone sees that point and can show me someone else who has made that point, I'd, I'd sure love to, to find out who that is and, and uh, see what else that we have in common. I have some other uh, more fun stories, like I have one called A Little Story about nothing. I have another one called The Stinky Sock in the State. Uh, I really enjoyed writing that. If you haven't heard The Stinky Stock, The, <laughs> the Stinky Sock and the State, uh, pick up that audio. It's from May 24th, and it's a fun little article. I really enjoyed that one. So what's the real purpose of BadQuaker.com? Well, is it to propagate theology? Well, yes and no. Um, is it to propagate philosophy? Well, yes and no. Is it to propagate a, politi a political, a particular political position? Well, yes and no. It's more or less uh, an opportunity to blend these things and show that really they're all the same and they have a root. Uh, and that and and as far as my philosophy and my religious view and my political view, they all have the same root, and that root is the zero aggression principle. If we fully understand the zero aggression principle, and we strive in our life to achieve that in our life uh, in a day-to-day -day basis, then it's my belief that we will positively affect more and more people around us. And as more people do this, the the chain reaction to to this effect of adhering to the zero aggression principle will become a tidal wave of of freedom and of peace and of liberty that will overwhelm all aspects of tyranny now there are a lot of people out there in the liberty movement today that are going down different paths trying to find the way to either achieve liberty in our lifetime or achieve liberty in the long run or perhaps shift the political agenda so that we can achieve liberty through the use of the state or to try to limit the state and, and achieve liberty. Um, it's my contention that all of these are a waste of time. And I, I'm not saying that the people doing those things are, are bad or they're they're you know, that their intentions are anything other than good. What I'm saying is that much of the energy spent trying to bend the state so that it makes room for us or so that it changes and behaves itself and, and so that we can work with it, it's my contention that all of these things are a waste of time because the state has a particular nature and that nature is evil. And, and that evil cannot be used for good. In the short term, you may be able to use the state to accomplish short-term goods. 
But as long as the state exists and as long as government is manipulated by this entity through coercion, through theft, through lies, as long as these things are the basis of government, then uh, it cannot be good. It, it will always uh, be headed towards an ultimate collapse. Let's go back to Herbert Spencer for a minute. Herbert Spencer envisioned eventually voluntary markets would grow to the point of where they would just render the state helpless. Now, yes, that's what I'm saying, in a way. Uh, I think Herbert Spencer was missing one aspect of this in what he was saying. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, or was it his friend? Uh, now I'm not sure, I'd have to look that up said that, that humanity would eventually get to the point of where they wouldn't need the state at all, and they would uh, simply step away from it. And I believe that is true. That's the case. Um, that is exactly what will happen. But the state is not going to just lay down and let that happen. The state is going to get really ugly when that happens. I was talking to someone the other day, and I was talking about... Uh, the, the controversy of creation and evolution was in the topic and uh, what should be taught in schools and so forth. And it was my contention that what is taught in the public schools really doesn't matter because what you're doing is you're using theft in the form of taxation to steal from people, to pay, to incarcerate children for you know 12 years or, or longer uh, against their will in a prison-like setting. And so whatever you teach them in there doesn't really matter. You're committing a horrible act of violence to put them there and incarcerate them. And you're committing a horrible act of violence to hold them in there. And so whatever you teach them doesn't matter. But then uh, this took us into the conversation of uh, evolution and creation as being these two philosophies that are not necessarily, they don't necessarily have to be opposed to one another. Um, I was talking in this conversation about the, the theory of punctuated equilibrium. Now, a lot of creationists will make fun of punctuated equilibrium by calling it uh, a doctrine of hopeful monsters. And this is the idea that, say, a, a velociraptor is walking along one day, minding her own business, and uh, uh, somewhere off in distant space, a star supernovas, and as, it, as the particles blast across space at near light speed, they encounter the Earth and just blast right through everything on Earth. And this velociraptor has a series of mutations that take place in her uh, undelivered uh, eggs. So then she goes, she makes her way to her nest. She doesn't even know that anything has happened because this, this gamma ray burst has hit the earth and just passed right through it, and seemingly nothing changes other than these odd mutations that we don't see. And so the velociraptor goes and sits in her nest, and she lays her eggs, and then she walks away, or she does whatever she does, and the eggs start to hatch. And so you have maybe a velociraptor who is mutated in a way that's not functional, and it doesn't survive. And you have another velociraptor who had some mutations, but they're not really noticeable, and he goes on with his life like normal. And we have another velociraptor that hatches out as a duck. Now that's the idea of hopeful monsters. Now hopefully another duck mutated 
during the same gamma ray burst, and they can reproduce and produce a species of duck, which the ducks then are more efficient than the velociraptors. The velociraptors, uh, through natural selection, do not make the cut, and the ducks survive. That's not exactly what punctuated equilibrium is. Punctuated equilibrium is... Yes, there is some event, uh, some some mutation-causing event that took place, a gamma ray burst or a sunspot or uh, whatever. But what we don't see in punctuated equilibrium is this uh, immediate um, leap from the velociraptor. Now I use the duck. Of course, that's an extreme version, So, but bear with me. So we don't actually see a velociraptor giving... Uh, laying an egg and out comes a duck. That's not actually punctuated equilibrium. But with punctuated, equi punctuated equilibrium, what you do in the theory, I'm not saying it's true, I'm saying this is the theory, what you have is this mutation has an effect upon the unborn uh, velociraptors. And so they adapt through the course of their life. And then they have offspring that adapt differently, and then offspring that adapt differently. And maybe over the course of, let's say, 20 to 100,000 years, the velociraptor goes from being a velociraptor to something slightly different than a velociraptor. This is different than the old-style evolution that Darwin uh, uh, presented to us, because Darwin's version of evolution had no mechanism to bring one species to become another species, whereas punctuated equilibrium it, it, it provides you with the theoretical mechanism that could cause this to happen. Um, now, if we take, and again, I'm not saying punctuated equilibrium or evolution is true, I'm just saying that this was the point of our discussion. However, it is interesting that if you take the idea of punctuated equil equilibrium, and you apply that to humanity, and you say that at some point in time, mankind was uh, stateless. He was free to do as he saw fit. And now, within a true free market civilization like this, people who were tended towards violence uh, may or may not be accepted by the other people in their society. You know, certain societies could turn more towards violence than others, and there would be a natural success or failure among these cultures. So if you actually if you take the actual evidence uh, of a Paleolithic, that's the old Stone Age, uh, Paleolithic civilizations, um, Paleolithic towns that we know of, uh, farming areas that we know of, an interesting thing, they didn't have fortified walls, or they didn't have fortified structures, they didn't have fortified towers. They had uh, very advanced, for their time, um, living standards, but they had no fortifications against other humans. Now, that indicates to me that either they were idiots, or they just didn't have a problem with mass violence from other humans. I tend to think it's probably that they were not idiots because they survived the Paleolithic Age and they became the ne Neolithic Age, the New Stone Age. Now, in the New Stone Age, we have some amazing accomplishments being done by these simple 
uh, using these simple tools that, that, they, that they had at their disposal. Things like uh, flint knives and bone uh, knives and bone um, uh, scraping devices and so forth. And yet they were able to do amazing things in the Neolithic age, but they still didn't have walled cities. They still didn't have fortifications against other humans. Now, once again, is it because they were stupid and they just let other humans come in and raid their villages? I don't think so. doesn't make any sense. Perhaps it is that humans in a natural setting like that do not need fortifications against other humans because they tend to cooperate. Until 9,000 years ago, when the first walled city appeared. And at first it wasn't even a walled city. It was a walled fortification with a tower. And it was big enough to hold 25 or 30 people and their horses and their equipment. That was at Jericho. Now, let's go back to the website. I've done several articles on Jericho. And what you can do is just go to bad, badquaker.com and over on the right-hand side you'll see a search area. And just put in the word Jericho and that will pull up the, some of the articles that I've written uh, referring to Jericho. Jericho was the first uh, known, first that we know of, first fortification where the state literally was born. That is the first true evidence of a state was at Jericho. Uh, and in all likelihood, and as I make this argument in the articles about Jericho that you can read, in all likelihood it was simply a gang of thieves that fortified themselves from that position where they could go out and rob the countryside. Because, like I was saying, the tendency of people is to work together and to cooperate for the better of all. Now, occasionally you get some criminal element, but given any particular community, they will find ways of dealing with those criminal elements without the use of the state. This reminds me of uh, the, the stark difference in two events that happened in the U.S. within recent memory. Uh, one was Hurricane Katrina that hit down in uh, uh, the Gulf Coast area and brought devastation to a number of communities. Most notably, people always talk about New Orleans. But the reason they talk about New Orleans and the reason they don't talk about certain Mississippi uh, towns and villages and communities that were hit just as hard as New Orleans the reason I talk about New Orleans is because of the unbelievable failure of the state in New Orleans to do the basic functions of what people expected it to do. The state not only failed to bring safety and security to the residents as far as in the aftermath and, and when there were criminal elements, but the state provided the criminal elements. Many of the criminal elements in in New Orleans, after Katrina, were employees of the state in one capacity or another. And yet, you cross over the Mississippi, you get into a different, uh, into the, the state of Mississippi, or in, even into northern Louisiana, into some of the communities in there, where literally the state was not able to go in and help communities, and those people were fine. They put up signs that said, looters will be shot. And they guarded their own communities and they took care of those within their communities that needed help. Now that was in Hurricane Katrina and I'm far away from that. I'm way up in western Ohio and sometime after Katrina 
a different hurricane came through, and that was Hurricane Ike. And this was a, there was several years between these, but Hurricane Ike came up through Texas and just tore a horrible path. The difference between Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Katrina is Katrina pretty much blew herself out as soon as she hit land. But Ike just kept coming. So it cut a swath all the way up through the United States and up into the Midwest. Here where we are in Ohio, we went a couple weeks without power. It ripped our roof off, um, along with roofs of many of the houses around us. Uh, the power was out where we are for two weeks. Uh, further into downtown Dayton, it was worse. They were out for even longer down there. Some areas in, in further uh, east in Ohio were out for longer than two weeks. And the same thing happened across Indiana and Kentucky and uh, the whole path of Hurricane Ike. And, you know, here's the funny thing. When, when it came through... And once the wind was stopped, and we saw what happened to our roofs, and we saw what ha the, the whole community was stuck with no electricity, some interesting things started happening in our community. First off, people started checking on their neighbors. We actually got to meet neighbors that have been across the street and down a couple houses that have lived here for several years we never got to meet. It allowed us to come out of our houses and talk to people and say, are you okay? What's the damage to your house? This is what happened with our house. Do you have ice? Do you need this? At one point, there were people walking through our neighborhood saying, we're, we're gathering all the meat before it goes bad, and we're bringing it over to this certain house, and we're going to cook it all up and have a big chili cookout. So if you have meat, or even if you don't have meat, and you'd like to come to the chili cookout, this is the address. And they're walking through the neighborhood telling people that. That's how this neighborhood handled it. And I cannot be convinced by anyone with any words that things happen different in other places if there's no boot of the state hanging over them. Because here's the unique thing about the whole time that, that that happened with Ike. In the whole two weeks, we did not hear sirens screaming. We did not have cops walking up and down the street, guarding us, telling us to behave, or, or making us uh, watching for curfews. There was no curfew. There were no, You know what? We have police in this town. But the police were taking care of their families. The police were taking care of emergencies that were coming up. The police were not coming into our neighborhoods and oppressing us or trying to control us or trying to uh, maintain us. We maintained ourselves. Without the presence of a cop on every corner, we still didn't fall upon each other like a bunch of savages. And the reason why is because it's in our best interest to function together and work together. Now, that's the way most humans are, and throughout history, that's how most humans are. Unless, unless those humans have become so dependent upon the state that they cannot function among themselves and with each other. This is what caused the problems in, in New Orleans. This is what causes the problems in inner cities. This is what causes people who have been entirely dependent upon the state and the functions of the state and then suddenly those functions fail and those people freak out because they don't know what to do. They don't know their neighbors or they don't trust their neighbors. Their neighbors are in the same condition they're in. They have become dependent upon the state for security, for sustenance, 
For all the things that make life good, they depend on the state for them. And so when the state fails, they have nothing but frustration, fear, and anger. That's why they react the way they do. But if the state were not there to teach them that behavior, they would have reacted like we did. So then that's where we bring this back to the discussion of punctuated, punctuated equilibrium. If punctuated equilibrium is a valid theory, or even if it's not, I'm going to present an aspect of it as a possibility. If a punctuated equilibrium is indeed an event that happens that begins some part of a species to move in a particular direction while leaving the other part of the species not moving in that direction. Then the question becomes, as the species divides into two parts, which one of these two is most suitable to continue the species and not die out due to some other factor? So, for instance, let's take the Velociraptor and his baby duck, her baby duck. Now, of course, uh, that's the hopeful monster side, but, but let's assume that the Velociraptor eventually produces the duck. The duck is able to adapt, and the duck is able to say, hey, it's too hot here, I'll fly north, and I'll find better food, and I'll find better mating situations. And then when it turns cold, the duck says, hey, I'm going to fly south, and he finds better food and better conditions and so he's able to adapt to climate change whereas the velociraptor was incapable of doing that so even though there may have been a vast period of time between the duck and the velociraptor the velociraptor was not adapted to change with his environment in a way that could cause him to continue to survive and there are no velociraptors left but we have ducks but who back in the day when 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 this branch started to split who could have looked back then and said these will go in this direction and fail and these will go in this direction and succeed and of course it would be impossible to tell in the early stages of this division now what i'd like to present is the possibility that at some point in time, whether it was because of a gamma ray burst or if it was because Adam plucked a fruit from a tree, at some point in time, man, there was a critical change that took place. And that critical change left humanity on two different roads. And at first, these roads were moving in the same direction with only a slight variance in their ultimate heading. So they moved along parallel paths. So, for instance, the people living in the Jordan Valley, dominated by the thugs that lived on the mound of Jericho, were developing pretty much identical to the ones one valley over uh, who were developing without uh, a gang of thugs in a, in a fortified structure. There wasn't a lot of difference between the two in the direction they were going and the way they were developing. With time, just like the variation that I'm talking about, the duck and the velociraptor, with time, this division gets more and more pronunciated. It gets more and more obvious. Until at some point in time, you have people who cannot function without the state, who desire the state, who have to have the state. And within that group of people, there are also those 
who desire to be the state, who have to dominate other people, who have to constantly be telling other people, you have to live like this. These are the rules you have to live by. Do this. Don't do that. Walk like this. Dress like this. These people have to behave that way as a part of their nature. And there are other people who have to have someone telling them how to behave like that. And then you have this other group of people who are branched off in this punctuated equilibrium that we're talking about, who are independent, who, who, who follow the zero aggression principle and who say, I don't need a law telling me not to do bad. I do not do bad because I'm not a bad person. I don't need the law telling me not to kill because I'm not going to kill anybody. I don't need the law telling me not to steal because I'm not going to steal no matter what the law says. These people have no use for the state. But the people who need the state and the people who run the state cannot tolerate the existence of those independent liberty-minded people. They are a threat to the status quo of the state. They, their very existence threatens the state because the state's premise is that humans can't get along without the state. And the liberty-minded person's very premise is I can get along with or without the state. Now, at some point, these two divisions of humanity move further and further apart until they become more and more obvious. So then, as these two groups, one divides off and continues to become more and more independent, while the other becomes more and more dependent upon the state, either dependent upon being the leadership of the state or dependent upon the leadership of the state. There is a flaw built into the state, and this is the flaw that Mises pointed out with socialism, because really all manifestations of the state depend at their core on socialism. Any time that there is a governing body that manipulates the market, controls the market, issues currency, has a monopoly on law, has a monopoly on justice, has a monopoly on violence, can tax. These things are the aspects of socialism. And Mises showed, without a doubt, that socialism lacks the price mechanism and therefore is unstable economically. Since the state and socialism is unstable economically, it cannot support itself without a free market to feed off of the very free market that is opposed to the free market that those independent liberty-minded people provide. So as the state absolutely has to have those free market people, the free market people don't have to have the state. And the two further divide, and this stark difference between them becomes more and more obvious. Now I mentioned earlier about schools and how that the state... Uh, the schools themselves are violence, and it is oppression, and it is a function of the state. And when you, when you steal from some people to pay for the education of other people, well, that's theft, and you're using theft and aggression to accomplish that. That's immoral. Now, when you also pass your law, and you say every, every child between these ages must go to school or the state shows up with the gun. Again, this is aggression and it's immoral. 
so when the state is involved in education in any way, it has to have these things. It has to have forced taxation, and it has to have forced attendance. So once you have a school setting where you have, it's based on theft and it's based on aggression, how can anything good come from that on a consistent basis? The only way to consistently raise a child and educate a child is if you can provide for them an alternative to that, where that they can function in a free society and, in a, in a, and not under the hand of aggression. And I'm saying this in the sense that my wife and I both homeschooled our children and we uh, had them in public school. We had them in public school because we simply had no choice. And there are millions and millions and millions of people around the, around the world today who have their children in public schools because they simply have no choice. Either they have no choice because the state will come and take the children if they don't, or they have no choice because of the economic conditions that require both parents to work constantly and they don't have the, the circle of family and friends that can provide a free market education for their children. So they're forced to bring their children into these institutes through the use of aggression from the state and that's the only option available to them. And that's tragic, but that's reality. That's how life is. So all we can do is do what we can do. We can't we can't charge this beast, we can't charge the state and just attack it and start tearing it down. In doing so, we're doing the mistake that I referred to earlier with uh, many people in the libertarian movement that want to get the state in control and wrestle it into a position where it will do what they want it to do. Well, it won't. It may temporarily. It may smile at you and convince you, oh yes, I'm going to be good this time. But it's, it's not. The state is like that alcoholic husband who promises the wife he will never drink and never beat her again. And then, you know, it, maybe he goes six or eight months. And then that night comes and things go bad and the beatings start again. And that's, what, that's the nature of the state. The state will always go back. As a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to his folly. And that's what the state does. It always falls back on its nature, and its nature is to steal and to lie and to commit violence. So we have to provide an education for our children that does not involve these things, that does not involve theft, that does not involve aggression, that does not involve lies. That's the challenge of being a parent. And when we have the boot of the state over our heads, sometimes we don't have a choice. Sometimes we submit or die. And there's no value in dying. When we're dead, the battle's over. We lost. So these people who are doing the best that they can in wrestling the state and trying to get the state to do good for them are wasting their energy. I'm sorry. And just as bad, if not worse, are those who get frustrated with the state to the point of where they choose to attack the state. Attacking the state, since the state is not a person, you can't go to the, per you can't go to the state and put your finger on the state and poke the state in the eye and say, I challenge you to a dual state. The state is not an entity like that. The state is simply the acts of people who believe in the state. It's people. And if you go and you start attacking the people who represent the state, then you're doing exactly what the state does. You're fighting the state according to its methods 
and that's as immoral as being a part of the state. So, so attacking soldiers that represent the state, attacking police that represent the state, attacking politicians that represent the state, all these things are wrong, and they're the exact opposite of bringing us towards liberty. What we have to do is we have to follow that other branch that's moving away from the state, and we have to move towards a voluntary society and ignore the state. And as we move towards self-sufficiency and voluntarism, and as a community of people we depend on each other and not the state, then like Herbert Spencer said, the state will become irrelevant. And like Henry David Thoreau said, we simply won't need it anymore. We'll learn, we'll move away from it. And that's the purpose of BadQuaker.com. It's to try to see what that path is and best push ahead on it to liberty. For more articles and podcasts on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to BadQuaker.com. And thank you for listening.